Several years ago, I read uh, a little book by uh, John Eldridge called Epic, The Story God is Telling. Have you ever read that book? How many of you ever read that book? Eldridge begins by uh, making the case that far too many Christians have lost their story. They've lost the narrative that gives meaning and purpose to their lives. And he contends that for too many Christians, we're content to just sit on the sidelines of life. That the, and, and, and sidelines are clearly no place for a Christian to spend our lives. And to, as, as think about it, we're followers of Jesus, a man of passion, a man of purpose, a man whose life bubbled over with meaning. So the sidelines is no place for his followers. You read John Eldridge in uh, a couple of three of his books, just elicits in you this desire to be a part of, of a bigger story. And I love this quote from the book. And uh, it's, he says, there's always a battle to fight, a beauty to rescue, and an adventure to live. I mean, I want that to be true, don't you? The problem for me is when I finish reading a book like a John Eldridge book or Erwin McManus or whoever your favorite author is, or I come home from a conference or we go home from church most Sundays and you're totally jacked and inspired, right? And most of us, here's the thing, most of us have to go out and take out the trash, right? And we, there's dishes to do and we got to mow the lawn, we got to pay the bills. And I don't know about you, but my life is not always epic. All right? A battle to fight? It's like, I don't, I don't know. What are you talking about? An adventure to live? I, I mean, really? Uh, have you ever met someone, as you get to know them, you discover that their life really is an adventure? You ever met those people? It's annoying, right? And, uh, but you know what I'm talking about. You meet those people, and their life really is an epic, an adventure to live. And we begin to think that if life, if life really is an epic, if life really is a story that God is writing then I must be an extra. Like, I don't have, I don't have a speaking part, right? He didn't, I don't get any credit at the end of the movie. He didn't really give me a part. It's just kind of nothing big going on. Here's a question I want to try to address uh, this morning. How do you keep at the forefront of your thinking that there is a larger story being told? That there is an adventure to be lived? How do you keep in mind that, how do you keep that in mind when you, like, leave here in, I don't know, two or three hours' time, and you go home, and no, no relax. And you, you got to take out the trash, right? How do you keep that in mind when you know the rest of the summer is going to fly by and you got to go back to school in a few weeks? How do you keep that in mind when you like, leave here and tomorrow you have to go to a job that you really kind of hate? How do you keep this in mind when the moment you leave this building and you get into a car with people that you seem to have no connection with anymore? How do you wake up every day and remember, this is an epic. I have been written into the script. God has a significant, significant place for me. There's something going on that matters. How in the world, in the midst of our routine, in, our, in the midst of our safe, predictable lives, how can we remember the significant, game-changing truth that there is a larger story? And as followers of Jesus, we've been called to play a role in the greatest story being told. Here's what I want to do for a few minutes. I want to read a story that many of you probably know. And the unfortunate thing about this story is that because of its familiarity, our mind runs to the end. So I want us to try to really not rush to the end, okay? I want us to kind of experience the story as the story happened, as it unfolds, because in this very familiar Old Testament story, for me at least, there's one huge uh, truth that it has, huge, has had huge impact on me. The simple truth that I'm going to extract from this story, 
I believe if you could take this one simple thing and keep it front and center in our lives, that on those days where the biggest adventure is just getting to work on time, when your life is anything but an adventure, I think this one simple truth come front and center allows us to wake up every day and say, yeah, but I'm still, I'm still in it. Like, I'm still a part of the story. I'm still in the script. I will not allow the story to just shrink down to the size of my little thing here. Today, I want to stay aware of the fact that there's a greater story, and I've been invited into it. The Old Testament story I'm talking about is the story of Joseph. If you're new to the Bible, I'm not talking about Mary and Joseph. That's a different Joseph. If you remember the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. It's 14 chapters long. Like almost nobody else uh, besides Jesus gets 14 chapters in the Bible, right? So it's a really significant story. But I'm going to tell you part of it. So you remember how there was Abraham, then there was Isaac, then there was Jacob, and then there was Joseph. Jacob had how many sons? Anybody know? Twelve sons that we know of. Joseph was the favored son. I, uh, I can't believe I'm even saying those words because it's not. So this is not an instruction in scripture. It's just telling a story. Okay, it's not saying you should have a favorite son. Okay, so just make sure we're clear on that. Okay, I think this is Jacob had, had some parenting issues going on here because it's pretty clear that he had a favorite son. You on, you on board with me on that? That's probably not a good idea. Okay, good. Okay, I just want to make sure we're on. Joseph was the favorite son. His brothers didn't like him. Hmm, wonder why. For several reasons. And his dad really set him up for failure. He didn't help his cause. One day his brothers see him coming, and they've had enough of Joseph and all the stuff that was included with the Joseph. They're like, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him. And they had a moment when they were going to kill him, and then they're overcome with mercy, and they're like, nah, let's just sell him. <laughs> and they throw him into a cistern. Remember this story? It's basically like a dry well, and they decide to sell him to a group of Ishmaelites who are on their way to Egypt. They're not on a sightseeing tour. They have a, they have a, they're carrying slaves with them. They're slave traders. Suddenly, there's this 17-year-old boy shackled at the ankles to other slaves on his way to a foreign country with a foreign language and a foreign culture to be sold as a slave to do, do, to do who knows what. And only, not only does he not know what's going on, he doesn't have any evidence that anything significant is going on in the minutia of his now worthless existence. And yet, from the vantage point of history, right, and the vantage point of Scripture, we know that God's up to something huge. And Joseph didn't know the first thing about it. I mean, this could be true in your life. Ankle to ankle, wrist to wrist, marching off to a purposeless, meaningless, possibly very short life. Nothing epic about that. Unless you see it through the lens of eternity. Through the lens of eternity, what was God doing? Well, God is taking this 17-year-old boy and perfectly positioning him to, to be in a place in a nation, within a nation, from whom the Messiah would eventually ultimately come and save the whole world. And the whole thing rested on the shoulders of this 17-year-old boy going into a meaningless, minutia-filled existence where there was no battle to win, there was no adventure to live. But the epic had started. And Joseph was the central character. So here's what happened. I'm going to read a few verses. In Genesis uh, chapter 39, you can follow along in the Bible app or on the screen. Genesis 39 verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. 
Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him. Don't rush past that. Bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And then this is strange. Verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. And I'm like, "Eh, no, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. That's not how it works. Like, that's not how, that can't be how it works. Come on. If the Lord had been with Joseph, if Joseph was really some part of some epic adventure and the Lord was with Joseph, Joseph would have been at home with his mom and dad, you know? And, and his brothers would have been in Egypt building pyramids or something because that's what happens when God is with you, right? I mean, isn't that the adventure? Come on, God, this can't possibly be, be you at work here. Look at, look, at, look at my pathetic, pitiful little life here. I mean, what are you doing? Like, what have I got going on that's really big? Like, nothing. Well, then I guess I must not be a part of an adventure. You can't uh, live with the assurance that God is with you when it looks like this, can you? The story goes on, and Joseph gets bought by Potiphar, and everything, like, begins to work out, right? Verse 5, from the time he, Potiphar, put him, Joseph, in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. To which, if I'm Joseph, I'm going, okay, hold on, on. like, tell me that one more time. Like, how does that work? Like, why don't you bless me because of me? Why are you, what are you blessing him for? Because of me? Oh, that's really great. Appreciate that. Thank you, God. That's so great. I was dragged out of my home, betrayed by my brother, sold into slavery. I'll never see my family again. Now God is with me and you bless him. Hey, if the Lord is with me, here's an idea. How about you bless me some too? Can you identify with that? Like, we think that's how it's supposed to work. So let's get real for a second. Could you really be playing a significant role in what God is up to and the circumstances of your life be what they are today? Is that possible? Absolutely. Do you know what Joseph was doing while he was in Potiphar's house? The son of a rich man spoiled 17-year-old who got everything he wanted, who suddenly is a slave in a foreign land where he can't speak the language, doesn't understand the culture. Do you know what he did while he's in Potiphar's house? He did exactly what any 17-year-old who would do who had been ripped away from his family and sold into slavery. He did exactly what any 17-year-old would do in those particular circumstances who was confident that God was with him. That's all he did. And the story goes on, and it goes from bad to better to worse. And God puts him in a situation where he can kind of have his first battle, because, you know, in the epic, there's always a battle to fight and an adventure to live. So God allows him to fight his first battle. Here's his first battle. One day, Potiphar's wife says, after, after this was going on for a long time, and one day she says, hey, Joseph, come here for a minute. I'm in my bedroom. So this happens one day, and then it begins to happen more and more often. And day after day, and he resists her. And finally, he has this kind of interesting conversation with her. And he's had enough, and he says this in verse 8. He says, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. And listen to this, you've got to be kidding. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Think about this. 
Joseph, you mean the God who's done so much for you lately? You mean the God who allowed you to be ripped away from your family and sold into slavery? You mean the God who has placed you in this situation and there's no way you can possibly come out the winner? That's the God you're going to be faithful to? You know what Joseph did in this situation? He did exactly what any young man would do who'd been ripped away from his family and sold into slavery and put in a no-win situation who was confident that God was with him. Because somehow Joseph knew, I don't know how he knew this, but he knew that even though God was extraordinarily silent, his God was not absent. Even though God was extraordinarily silent and seemed to be nowhere around, somehow Joseph clung to the fact that through, though he is silent, he is not absent. And Joseph did in that situation where there seemed to be no great battle to win. There seemed that this is like not the adventure I want to live. In that moment where there seemed to be no context, he didn't know what was going on. In fact, he didn't know anything was going on. There was no Bible. There were no prophets. There was this, you know, his, his great-grandfather who left his homeland and kind of messed up his family. And, you know, he was going to be a nation. And, and he had like, what, one kid? Like, whoo, big nation you got going there, Gramps. I mean, he has no context. He doesn't know the grand plot. And yet Joseph did what anybody in those circumstances would do who was absolutely confident that God was with them. You remember how he was rewarded for that? Because when you're on God's side, you always come out the winner, right? Yeah. He's framed for sexual assault. Potiphar comes home. He throws him in the dungeon where Pharaoh's prisoners are kept. And there he is once again, no hope, no context, no promise, just a kid alone in a dungeon, in a foreign land. But somehow in that moment, somehow he just decided that he would do what somebody in his circumstances would do if they were confident that God was with them. He gets thrown into the dungeon. This is kind of funny to me. Verse 20. While Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. And I don't want to be sacrilegious here. So I, I want to be careful. So I wrote this in my notes. <laughs> This verse, while Joseph is in prison, the Lord is with, with him. And then I wrote, so what? <laughs> right? Like, I don't want the Lord to be with me in prison because I don't want to be in prison. That's no great consolation. Oh, Lord, thank you for being with me in prison. I've got an idea. Could you go be with somebody else for a little while? Maybe go spend some time with my father because he's probably lonely because I'm not with him. I mean, thanks for all these blessings, you know. As God is with me in prison, things aren't going very well. That's not an epic. That's not an adventure. And there in the prison, the Lord was with Joseph. And although he was silent, he was not absent. And God was up to something huge. And Joseph didn't know what it was. But you know what Joseph did in that dungeon? He did what any young man would do who'd been ripped away from his family and sold into slavery, and framed for assault, and thrown into a dungeon, who was confident that God was with him. I love this next line. While Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. If you're on a first-name basis with the prison warden, things are not going well for you. I mean, if a happy day is, 
Oh God, give me favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Thank you. What? That, you may be at an all-time low, right? Oh yeah, me and the warden, we're like this. Man, things are great. I mean, I'm part of the epic. You know, I live in the dungeon and the warden is nice to me. Woohoo! <laughs> it's kind of funny. But isn't that our lives sometimes? Isn't it just the mundane, like it's Sunday morning, another church service, another sermon, got to power through, another Monday, another meeting, another practice, another class, another appointment, another customer, another deal. I mean, isn't it hard to live every day as if there's something bigger going on? You know what Joseph did there? Do you know why Joseph found favor in the eyes of the warden? Do you know why, no matter how bad his circumstances got, somehow God was always able to keep the story alive and to keep the story moving forward? It's real simple, because Joseph did, in all of those circumstances, what anybody in those circumstances would do if you're confident that God is with them. Then out of nowhere, there's a glimmer of hope. Pharaoh got mad at his barista, and he got mad at his cupbearer, and he got mad at his baker... (laughs) So he threw them both into the dungeon. Occasionally, Mike Barista gets the coffee order wrong. I do not have a barista dungeon, but I could something to think about. They each, his cupbearer and his baker, so he throws them in the dungeon, okay? So you got to get a picture of how extreme this situation was, okay? Anyway, these guys, they each had a dream. One morning at breakfast, they're talking about these weird dreams they had. And Joseph is like, I can interpret dreams. Tell me what happened. And the cupbearer tells his story, and Joseph says, I got good news for you, dude. In three days, you're out of here. And then he says to him, uh, look, when you get out of here, would you do me a favor? And the cupbearer is like, well, of course. I mean, if this comes true, I'll do you a favor because this is pretty remarkable what's going on here. He says, would you please just put in a good word for me with the people in the household of Pharaoh? Because I don't deserve to be here. I got thrown in here. At, I'm, I'm innocent of the charges, and they've forgotten about me. And he tells him his whole story. I was ripped away from my family. I was falsely accused. I've been a model prisoner. I don't deserve to be here. Would you do whatever it takes to get me out of here? Because Joseph wasn't enjoying this experience. He hated his circumstances, just like you and me hate our circumstances sometimes, the minutia and all the things where we find ourselves, right? And he says, would you please put in a good word for me? And I mean, like, come on, how difficult would it have been for this guy to actually follow through? Because in three days, he's released. He's back serving Pharaoh. How difficult, like how much is he asking for him to just like, just say, hey, Pharaoh, since we're talking here, I want to tell you about this guy down in the dungeon. I mean, how hard would that have been? And you know what I'm talking about because you're like, Lord, all I need is this one break. All I need is this one opportunity. All I need is this one interview, this one promotion, this one chance. God, this is so simple that even I understand it. Let me explain what you need to do. (laughs) All you have to do is this. If you'll just give me this one thing. This isn't going to, like, God, this isn't going to tax your energy. Like, the lights in heaven aren't going to dim because this is so difficult for you, okay? Have you ever prayed that prayer? God, if you'll just do this one thing. And Joseph is going, man, all I need is this one thing. Just mention me to Pharaoh. Tell him a little bit of my story, and I'm out of here. How hard is that? Not asking for a miracle here. Chapter 40, verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph... And then in case we don't know what that means, he forgot him. God was silent, but he was not absent. What's going on, Joseph? What's happening? What you got going on? Nothing. 
I live in a dungeon. My best friend is the warden. I'm going to be here the rest of my life. So I'm like, what do you mean what's going on? I caught a rat the other night and sell three biggest rat I ever saw. I got that going on. That's what you're talking about. I love this story because it's a microcosm. It's God saying, just because you don't see it happening doesn't mean it isn't happening. Just because you don't understand doesn't mean it doesn't make any sense. Just because you don't know how to interpret circumstances doesn't mean there isn't a divine interpretation. Just because it looks like more minutia, another Monday, another meeting, another training, another customer, another church service, another school year, another class, another you know, exam, another argument, another doctor's appointment, another payment, just because it just seems like it's going nowhere fast, we need to understand there's a story and we have been written into the story. We've been, we have a part in the script. And our responsibility as followers of Jesus isn't always to understand it. Our responsibility is to wake up every single day and ask this question, what would someone in my circumstances do today if they're absolutely confident that God is with them? And then decide, I'm just going to do that. And tomorrow, when I wake up, I'm going to ask the question, what would somebody with this job, with this husband, with this wife, with these kids, these kids, and these physical ailments, and with, this, and with this debt, and with this baggage, what would that person do if they were absolutely confident that God was with them? That's what I'm going to do. Because sometimes God is silent. But I don't think he's absent. So Joseph was forgotten. The Bible says two years went by. Two years went by, and although the cupbearer forgot him, God never forgot him. Do you ever feel forgotten? So Pharaoh has a dream. (laughs) Pharaoh has a dream. (laughs) These cows come out of the Nile River, these big cows. Then some scrawny cows come out of the Nile, and they eat the big fat cows. And he wakes up, and you're like, that was my dream last night. <laughs> Don't, just keep that to yourself. <laughs> He's, I think Pharaoh's like, what did I eat for supper last night? Like, what is going on? And he goes back to sleep, and he has another dream. And the stock of grain sprouts seven heads, full and healthy. And then seven more heads, like sick and withered. And the withered heads eat the seven healthy heads. And he wakes up, and he's like, so confused and a little like this must be something because it's just so weird and he calls on all of his advisors and all the smartest people he knew and they try to interpret the dream it's been two years and the cupbearer says excuse me excuse me pharaoh sorry to interrupt this is kind of interesting i hate to bring this up now but you may remember uh, a couple years ago we had a little falling out and i messed up your drink and i you sent me to prison and i was in the dungeon and while I was there, I met this guy named Joe, Joseph, and he interpreted a dream for me, and it came true. And that's why I'm standing here. So I think you ought to drag him out of the dungeon, because I'm pretty sure he can interpret your dream for you. So out of his desperation, Pharaoh brings Joseph out of the dungeon, and they cleaned him up, and they put on some fresh clothes. He has no idea what's going on. He's brought in before Pharaoh. Think about it. And this is what Pharaoh says to Joseph in verse 15. He says, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. <laughs> so Pharaoh says, Joseph, I don't know who you are. I don't, you don't come with a long resume. I don't know what's going on here. But I've heard that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph is looking at the most powerful man in the world. And this guy thinks he's a god. And he says, verse 16, Joseph says, I cannot do it. Wrong answer. I mean, this is it. 
You've asked for an opportunity. You got it. This is your one path out, Joseph. You don't look at the king of the world and say, can't help you. You know, got to get back because me and the warden, we got some important stuff going on with those rat situations. So we got, and he's my buddy. I can't leave him alone there. So I got to get back. He's like, I cannot do it, Pharaoh. But, but God, God will give Pharaoh the answer he, de- he desires. <laughs> to which everybody in the palace is like, Na 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 na. Hey hey, hey Hebrew guy, don't come into the palace and look into the eyes of the guy who thinks he's God, and say, "Well, you're not smart enough to figure it out, and you're God. You're little gods. You know, you aren't smart enough to figure it out. But me and my God, you know, God, my God's a powerful God. Been in your dungeon for 13 years. That's how powerful my God is. So look out, I'm your man." I've organized your dungeon. It is one smooth operating dungeon. My God is going to tell you that you, what, what you don't know because he's bigger and smarter than your God. That's why I've been hanging out in your dungeon for 13 years. All makes sense while you've been ruling the known world. It's so ridiculous, right? And Joseph, it's like, you've got to play the game here, right? You don't talk about God now. Talk, talk to God later, you know, and thank you for giving me an interpretation of the dream. It's really cool. Thanks a lot. You rock. I'm, when I'm out of here and I'm rich and famous and I'm writing a book, I'm on a book tour, I'll give you all the glory for right now. Let's keep this between us. Why does he do this? Do you know why he said what he said? Because that's what you do when you've been stolen from your home and thrown into a cistern and betrayed by your brothers and sold into slavery and framed for a crime and thrown into a dungeon and stand before the most powerful man in the world and you're confident that God is with you. And Pharaoh, this had to be unprecedented. Pharaoh's just like, okay, all righty then. Here's the dream. Like he didn't even respond to what Joseph had just said. And he, he tells Joseph his dream. And Joseph is like, huh, oh, easy. That's an easy one. Here's the interpretation. Because <laughs> you've got to read the story on your own. Because it's like, who does this guy think he is? He's standing in front of the most powerful man in the world after spending years in the guy's dungeon. And he looks at the most powerful man in the world and he interprets the dream. And he says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have seven years of plenty. Then you're going to have seven years of famine. He's speaking truth to power here. He doesn't have a problem with it. He's like, you got that? You're writing this down, Pharaoh? Because this is important stuff. Okay, now. That's the interpretation of the dream. Here's what you need to do. He's not interpreting the dream anymore. Now he's giving free advice to Pharaoh. You've got to find yourself a guy who's really sharp, maybe like a guy who can interpret dreams or something like that. Put him in charge of the famine project because Pharaoh, you can't handle this on your own. It's bigger than you. You've got to find a guy. You've got to put this guy in charge of the project. You've got to send him out all over your kingdom. You've got to go out there, save all this extra grain. You've got to spread it out all over the land. Then after the seven years are up, don't let the people have everything immediately. You've got to spread it out and have a system here. The people are going to be so dependent on you. I mean, if you think about it, Pharaoh, at that point, like, you're the man now. Like, you're going to rock when these seven years of plenty are over because everybody's going to be coming to you. And Joseph outlines this whole plan. Like, nobody asked him for advice. It's like, uh, Joseph, we asked you to interpret a dream, not economics 101. We didn't ask you how to run the country. We're cool with that. We got that pretty much figured out. I mean, like, where have you been again? Oh, yeah, I've been in the dungeon. I've been running the prison, me and the warden. We're tight. Like, what is he thinking? I love this verse. We're almost done. Genesis 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, (laughs) I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Because, like, I've known you for, for, like, 15 minutes, Joseph. So everybody cool with that? We all good with that? All in favor? Okay, great. And all of his advisors are like, what? I, I guess so, Pharaoh. That's a great idea. What is he doing? We've been serving you all our lives. We're working our way up. So sure, put the young Hebrew prisoner 
Put him in charge of the whole thing. Yeah, that's cool with us. Why wouldn't it be cool with us, Pharaoh? Great plan. <clears throat> and you know what Joseph did then? Now he's the most powerful man in the whole kingdom, except for Pharaoh himself. And he's got wealth, and he's got power, and he's got influence, and he's got everything most of us want. But you know what he did? He did exactly what you would do if you'd been ripped from your family and thrown in a cistern and betrayed by your family, sold into slavery, framed for a crime, thrown into a dungeon, stood before the most powerful man in the world, gave him great unsolicited advice, and was put in charge of saving the whole country if you were confident that God was with you. That's all he did. He didn't know the story. He didn't know the story like we know the story. He didn't know there was a story. And God, who'd been so silent, was never absent. And he accomplished his will to create a nation and sustain that nation in light of a coming famine, a nation from whom the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would come. And this key player never knew the story. All he knew was, if God is with me, what do I do in these circumstances? Let me ask you a couple questions and we're done. Do you know, do you know what God wants to accomplish through you? The correct answer is no, you don't. So like, hey, how many people does God want to influence through you? You don't know that. Do you know what hangs in the balance of your decision to walk out of here and wake up every day saying, today, I'm not going to try to figure the whole thing out. I'm not going to try to leverage and manipulate and control. Today, I'm just going to live my life like anyone who is absolutely confident that God is with them. Do you know what hangs in the balance of your decision to live your life that way? Do you know what hangs in the balance? No, you don't. We don't know. And we don't want to miss our part in the story. You don't want to wake up one day and look back and be like, oh, how dumb was I? I missed it. I kept trying to manipulate and make it happen and force the issue, and I missed it. And I thought maybe because I was just a high school student that God couldn't possibly use me. Like, he wouldn't bother to show up in my circumstances then, so I figured I had lots of time. Like, let me get after college and get, like, after maybe my 20s and then tune in with what God wants to do through me. Listen, you don't know what God wants to do through you. But what you and I know that Joseph really, I don't think, ever knew is that God is up to something big. We're in an epic story, and we don't want to miss it. And the great thing is, oh, listen, your part isn't very complicated. Here's our part, okay? Here's our part in the deal. To wake up every day and ask the question, what would someone like me, in my circumstances, do if they were absolutely convinced that God was with them? You ask that question and you'll get the answer. I want to read you one more passage of Scripture. This is from the New Testament. Some of you probably memorized this too, but I want you to listen to it through maybe this filter today. One day Jesus stood after his resurrection. He stood on a hillside with a whole bunch of his followers. And here's what he said in Matthew 28. He said, all authority, all authority is bigger than Pharaoh, bigger than the Roman Empire. 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. We often stop right there and we really, really shouldn't. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. When you're in the cistern, I'm with you. When you're on your way to Egypt, I'm with you. When you're in the dungeon, I'm with you. When you've been forgotten, I'm with you. When you're in the presence of powerful people, with you. Got all the wealth in the world, with you. Got all the influence and responsibility in the world, I'm with you. Your responsibility, our responsibility is very, very simple. You don't have to know everybody else's role, okay? You don't have to. Quit trying to figure that out. You don't have to wonder, why can't I play their part? Their part is so much better. Why don't I play theirs and they play mine? Because mine kind of isn't so great. Every day we just need to get up and remember that even though God is oftentimes silent, He is not absent. So I will simply live this day as if my Heavenly Father is with me. Here's the challenge. Are you willing to live? Are you willing to love? Are you willing to lead as men and women and students, as somebody who is confident that God is with you. Confident even in the minutiae, the routine, the boredom, the confusion, the no-win situations. Are you willing to approach all of that with the attitude that God is with you? Because if you are, you will play your role in the epic story and you may never know all that God has done or will do through you, but at the end of the day, we'll be the players that the God the Father looks at and says, way to go, you fulfilled your role. And you're like, I didn't even know I had a role. I never saw anything big happen in my life. And your heavenly Father says, well done, good and faithful servant, because there was a big part, there's a big story, you played your part well, not because you knew all the intricacies and could explain it all, but because you simply laughed on to the whole idea of what would a person in my situation do if they were absolutely confident that God was with them. Can we go from here and live like that? Can we lead that way? Can we love with that in mind? What would you do if you're confident that God is with you? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that in every circumstances that you are with us. That when we find ourselves hated by those closest to us, or in a cistern, or on our way to Egypt, or in the face of false accusations, and even in the dungeon, that you are with us. That you're with us when we've been forgotten. That you're with us when everything is going our way. Thank you that our circumstances are not an indicator of whether you're present or not. Thank you that even in those times when you are silent, that we can be confident that you are not absent. Help us to be mindful of the story that you're writing, the story of redemption, that in this story you can and will and want to redeem the circumstances and the experiences of our lives to accomplish your purposes for your glory. We're humbled that you've chosen to include us in this story, a story that matters for eternity. 
We invite you to use every circumstance of our lives to bring attention to the story that you're writing and to bring glory to you. May each of us, Lord, go from this place to live, to love, to lead with confidence that you are with us. And as we do that, we recognize our own limitations. We acknowledge our dependence on you. And so today, we want to surrender ourselves anew to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.